that, isn't it? Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Hey, there we go. Try again. Um, do you own a piece of clothing in your wardrobe that you never wear, but you know it's in your wardrobe? Um, in fact, you know you're probably never going to wear it again, but it's still in your wardrobe. Um, a couple of years ago, I got some new jumpers for my birthday, and I tried to put them in my wardrobe, and there was no room in my wardrobe. So I'd reached that point that you get to where you're like, I need a clear out. I'm going to have to get everything out and work out what to do with it all. And one item in particular grabbed my attention when I did this, and it was a brown two-piece suit. Now, you've got to understand, when I was at university, I went through what I call a brown period. I don't know if anyone else has done this, where they have a stage of their life where they just buy the same colour clothing. That was what I did at university. I, I must have decided that brown looked OK on me, and so I just went out and bought everything in brown. So I had brown T-shirts, I had brown trousers, I had brown coat, brown hat, just the full thing. I was just loads of brown. And then um, at the end, as I approached the end of university, I thought, I need to buy a suit because I'm going to have to go to job interviews, and so I probably ought to have a suit. So, of course, I brought a brown suit, didn't I? Because that's what you do when you think you look good in brown. Um, as far as I know, I think I wore that suit three times. Uh, I went to a couple of job interviews, and I wore it to my graduation, and then into my wardrobe it went, and I didn't wear it again. And the years went by, and now and again I might notice the brown suit in the corner of my wardrobe, and I think, should I get rid of it? I thought, well... Maybe I'll need it again. There might come a time when I want to wear it. And so I didn't get rid of it. And more time passed. All my other brown clothing wore out. I moved on. I moved away from brown. And I stopped even noticing I had a brown suit in the corner of my wardrobe. I didn't even realize it was there. And then this came this day where I took everything out of my wardrobe. I found my brown suit. And even though I'd not worn it for over 10 years, even though I didn't own any other brown clothing anymore, even though it didn't fit me, probably, and didn't suit me, definitely, I still hesitated before I got rid of it, because I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I'll wear it again, which is a bit mad, isn't it? Why am I talking about clothes? Well, the passage we're looking at today, Paul uses a picture of clothing to talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Over these last few weeks, we've been working our way through this letter that Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Colossae. Uh, that's a place that now is in modern-day Turkey, but back then it was part of the Roman Empire. Now, Paul had never actually been to Colossae. He was writing to that church from prison in Rome, um, but he had heard all about the church. He'd heard about the challenges that they were facing, and so he wrote to that church to encourage them and to challenge them. In particular, he's concerned there are some people who have come into that church community and they are offering add-ons to a faith in Jesus. They're saying it's not enough to just believe in Jesus to be made right with God. No, you need more. You need to perform religious rituals. You need to keep lists of rules. You need to abstain from certain foods and you need to acquire special secret knowledge that only we can give you. And in the letters, that, the bits of the letter we've been looking at in these last few weeks, Paul has written out this absolutely amazing argument as to why none of that is true. In one of the most amazing passages of the Bible, he's expounded who Jesus is, that he is the image of the invisible God, and how he has triumphed over all powers and authorities, and how we are now his. And he's pointed them back, Paul's repeatedly pointed them back to Jesus to remind them of his supremacy, that he alone, Jesus alone, is the one who saves. They don't need anything else. They just need Jesus. 
And so that's the context at which we come to this point in Paul's letter that we're reading today. So Paul is now turning, what does it all mean? So knowing who Jesus is, knowing that it's Jesus who saved us, how are we to live? So we're just going to read the passage together. If you've got a Bible, it's in Colossians chapter 3, or it's also going to come up on the screen. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. Lord, I pray you would speak to us this morning. I pray that anything that's just of me would just fall away. But Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place and ask that you would yeah, speak to us and change us today. Amen. So I wonder how familiar you are with building Lego sets. Um, I didn't spend much of my life building Lego, if I'm honest. And then in the last few years, as a mum of two small children, I've done a lot of Lego. Um, When my girls were younger, uh, myself and my husband, Matt, we'd often help them to build Lego sets. So there's two ways of doing Lego, isn't there? There's the box of Lego like this, where you just build whatever you want, which is great fun. But then there's also sets of Lego. They come with long instruction booklets. You've got to follow 56 steps to, you know, to order to build the Lego sets. And, and my girls, they love, they love to do that. So when, when they were younger, we would help them to do that. In the last few years, as they've got older, they don't want our help. They want to do it themselves. So they want to follow the instructions and, and build these things. And so my job these days is not so much the Lego builder, it's the Lego rebuilder. Because, of course, what happens is the Lego sets get broken, and then the girls aren't really as interested in rebuilding the Lego as they were in building the Lego, and it's new and shiny. And so I get to rebuild the Lego. But there's something I've noticed in my role as the rebuilder of the Lego sets. And sometimes it's the reason the Lego set broke so easily is because it wasn't quite built correctly in the first place. So sometimes a block has just been placed in slightly the wrong place, or sometimes a block has been placed the wrong way around, or sometimes a block got missed altogether. And then my girls have carried on building, but the resulting structure is not quite right, and it's not quite as it was intended to be, so it's not quite as secure. And then when it gets knocked, 
falls apart more easily. It's only when I examine it and I realize where things have gone wrong that I follow the instructions and I can then put it back together the way it was intended and it's much more secure. Sometimes we can do this with our understanding of who God is and what it means to follow him. Sometimes people talk about theology, but what they mean by that is just your understanding of who God is. And sometimes we can get our understanding of God wrong. And it's like we've got the blocks in slightly the wrong place. And if everything isn't right, then the whole thing above it can start to become precarious or even fall apart because it's based on something that wasn't quite right in the first place. Throughout his letters and throughout this letter to the church in Colossians, Paul is trying to make sure that they have got all their blocks in exactly the right place, facing the right way. And there's these two common problems that every Christian is in danger of getting wrong. And that it's why we have to keep coming back to Jesus again and again. So on the one hand, you've got the danger of legalism. Thinking you have to follow rules and rituals to make you right with God. And on the other hand, there's the danger of not taking sin seriously. And thinking God's grace means you can act however you like and live however you want. I heard a talk at a Christian event many years ago, and it had this title, Law Monkeys and Grace Junkies, which has stuck with me ever since. I have absolutely no idea who it was who said it. If, anyone, if this resonates with anyone and you want to tell me at the end who I've nicked this from, please come and let me know, because I cannot remember. Um, but it stuck with me because it's this kind of really vivid image of these two um, dangers that we could fall into. And we're all susceptible to both of these things in different ways. And we have to try and live in this, this tension between these two things. So on the one hand, you have law monkeys, which is what Ellie was talking about last week. And if you've missed her talk, I'd really encourage you to go back and catch up. It's available online to, to listen back to. And this is the idea that you have to add to what Jesus has done. So you have to perform certain rituals. You have to follow long lists of rules to ensure that you're saved. And this type of living is actually really attractive sometimes because then we know where we are and we can feel safe because we followed all the rules. And bit by bit, we can slip into performing actions not to draw us closer to Jesus, but to reassure us that we are right. And then on the other hand, perhaps you might have responded to Ellie's talk last week with a yes, hurrah, no more rules. Because Ellie said last week, if there's a big red button that says do not push, some of us really want to push that button. If there is a sign, do not walk on the grass, you really want to walk on the grass. So living free of any rules sounds brilliant. And then you come to today's passage, and you're like, hang on, Paul. What were you just saying before? What happened to throwing out all the rules? Don't handle, don't eat, don't touch. You just said the rules don't matter, they can't save us. So why are you now listing a whole long list of things I can't do? Let's be clear that thinking following Jesus means you can just do whatever you like and still be saved is as faulty as believing you have to keep a long list of rules to be saved and build your life upon either and it will collapse. Why? Because when you realize that you are loved by God, when you choose to follow Jesus, when you ask him to save you and forgive you, when you are filled with his Holy Spirit, something happens. Your identity has fundamentally changed. You are now a child of God, adopted into his family. You live for Christ, and Christ lives in you. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's Romans chapter six. And this is the same point that Paul is making here in the passage we were just reading in his letter to the Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You have been rescued by someone who loves you. But precisely because God is love, he doesn't control us like robots. He loves us and he invites us to love him. You can't be in a close relationship with someone that you don't care about. Over and over again, Paul draws us back to the heart and the mind. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. In other words, set them on Christ. And in doing that, on continually setting our minds and hearts on Christ, we will be changed. Our direction will be set. We'll become more like Jesus, not in our own power and strength, but in his. Because it's impossible to love and not be changed. Trying really hard to be good won't get us anywhere. It will lead us into legalism, and it will sap all of the joy from our lives. But equally, living for ourselves, seeking our own pleasure above all things, doing whatever we like, will also lead to an empty life, ultimately unfulfilled, and pulling us away from the source of true life, who is Jesus. So Paul says, as people who've been rescued by Jesus, who have been raised to new life with Jesus, who love him, how are you to live? which takes us all the way back to where we started and my brown suit. Because after pondering this brown suit for a brief period, I did realize how insane it would be to keep it because it didn't fit me, it didn't suit me, and I was never going to wear it again. So I did get rid of it. Paul is saying all these things that he lists in this passage, they don't fit you anymore. They don't suit you as a follower of Jesus. Get rid of them from your life. Don't mess around. Take it seriously. Ask God to help you. I just want to read that bit of the passage again. I'm going to read it in a slightly different uh, in a different translation. Um, sometimes it just helps to reread um, bits of the Bible in different translations. Um, you can do that really easily online on um, sites like Bible Gateway or the Bible app. And it just sometimes allows God to speak to you in another way. So I'm just going to read verses um, 5 to 11 again in the New Living Translation this time. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lusts, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Because of, these things, the, because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now it's time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Did you catch that in verse 10? Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Put off the old so you can put on the new, being renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. We need to remember that when we realize that Jesus loves us and has died for us, 
that means he's also loved and died for everyone else as well. The things Paul lists here are things that will damage our relationship with Jesus, but they'll also damage our relationship with the people around us as well. It comes back to those central commandments that Jesus pulled out for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're doing that, if we're doing that we will do these things. Um, so we won't do these things that Paul has listed and we've just read. God loves you. He also loves that person sat next to you and the person sat in front of you. He loves your family. He loves those people who really annoy you. He loves people who don't look like you or sound like you, the people who don't dress like you, the people who vote for the different political party than the one you did, those who have different education, those who have more money than you do, those who have less. God's grace is this wonderful thing when it's applied to ourselves, but it gets harder when we grapple with his grace applying to those around us. It's just so amazing that like a, a disco is going on downstairs right now. That is really loud. Anyway, um, so it can be harder when we get... Oh, Lucy's like, I'm just going to go and check that they're not like destroying the children's hearing. That's good. God's grace is this wonderful thing when it applies to ourselves, but it gets harder when we grapple with his grace applying to all those people around us. It could be offensive even. It was challenging to the people of Colossae, and it's challenging to us now. When Paul writes that there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, those would have been massively radical words to hear for the people of Colossae. At the time that Paul was writing, the world had some pretty strict hierarchies. Some people were important, some people were not important. In that first version of the passage I read, Paul says Scythians. The Scythians were a non-Greek people who lived in countries to the north of Colossae. In the version we just read, it, it, it translates that as uncivilized. Basically, it's a shorthand way of saying, of Paul saying, people who are not like us. And Paul's point is everyone is in. We need to go out of our way to make sure everyone is welcome. That's all of us are welcome, not just special super holy Christians. Everyone who is in Christ, you're a new creation. The call is to put off the old and to put on the new. And what is the new? Well, Paul spells that out for us too in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Wow, what an amazing and challenging list. This is not gonna be possible in our own strength. We can try really hard to clothe ourselves with these things, but we're not gonna do it in our own strength. We're gonna need to keep coming to Jesus every single day, connecting with him, asking him to fill us with his spirit and to clothe us with these things. We need humility in that sense that we have to choose what to wear every day. And as we invest in our relationship with Jesus, we're looking to him to work in our hearts and give us the desire to choose the right things. And when we do fall short, we come back to Jesus again. I was so encouraged by Paul sharing that, that um, passage this morning, which just ties in so well with this, that, um, yeah, God's love never gives up, never runs out. 
Faith said that as well in the, in the time of worship, that his, his grace is wide, and having our hearts become more like Christ is that process day after day as we keep turning our hearts and minds back to him, we are changed to be more like him. Thing is, I don't think we're that good with gradual change. I think we would much more prefer our change to be quick and dramatic. We all love stories of spectacular victories and transformations, don't we? We can see that in the stories that we like to tell and the TV we like to watch. I'm a big lover of home transformation television. I don't know if anyone else joins me in that. Um, I love uh, TV shows like Stacey Solomon's Sort Your Life Out in Seven Days. Absolutely love it. If you've never watched it, it's brilliant television. Basically, they go to a family where their whole life is chaos. Their whole house is overrun with clutter. They take everything out, every single one of their possessions, lay them out in a giant warehouse and get them to choose whether they want to keep it or get rid of it. In the meantime, they go around their house, redecorating it and um, sorting out and adding loads of storage. And then they help them to put everything back. And it's just this miraculous transformation in seven days. It goes from utter chaos to just this most idyllic and amazing life, basically, in seven days. It makes fantastic television. If it was just somebody, over a series of months, gradually working their way around the house, decluttering and decorating, I don't think it would make very good TV. It wouldn't be anywhere near as exciting or dramatic. Sometimes, God does instantly and spectacularly transform people. Praise God when he does that. It's amazing. And yet, perhaps more often than not, God's work to transform us is much more gradual, day after day, decision after decision. And even when there are these amazing, life-transforming encounters with God, even then it's still followed by that gradual, day after day process of transformation. And you can see this in the life of Paul. So Paul, who wrote this letter that we are looking at uh, to the Colossians, Many of you will know that story of, of how Paul became a Christian, how he encountered Jesus. Paul was actually called Saul, he had a different name, and Saul was on the road to Damascus, and you can read this story in Acts chapter 9. I'd really encourage you, if you've not read it, read it, it's a fantastic story. And Saul encounters the risen Jesus on the road in this dramatic and amazing way, which is utterly life-transforming. And he goes from being Saul to being called Paul, and his name, Paul, means small or humble, and he goes from this person who's been persecuting Christians, trying to hurt them, put them in prison, even kill them, to being a Christian, following Jesus, and uh, living his whole life for Jesus. So he has this amazing and dramatic encounter, but then, after that, Paul goes off for several years, and he stays in a whole different place called Tarsus. And he spends even more years after that being discipled by this amazing guy called Barnabas. And so it's years before they then set out on their first journey to plant a church. You've got this big dramatic moment that's followed by the quiet day-to-day process of Jesus working in Paul's heart and mind. And that continued throughout Paul's whole life. I recently read um, the autobiography of Johnny Cash. You may well know who he is. Uh, he was a country music singer. Uh, he was signed to the same record label as Elvis Presley at the start of his career. Um, Johnny Cash died in 2003. There's a film about his life, actually, that's, that's re- I really like, uh, called Walk the Line. Um, but what drew me to his autobiography and to reading it was his honesty about both his love for Jesus, but also his lifelong struggle with an addiction to drugs. 
And I think the way Johnny writes about drugs could actually be a metaphor for any kind of sin that can worm its way into our lives and pull, our, pull us away from Jesus. So Johnny writes in his autobiography, all mood-altering drugs carry a demon called deception. You think, if this is so bad, why does it feel so good? I used to tell myself, God created this. It's got to be the greatest thing in the world. But it's like the old saying about the wino. He starts drinking out of the bottle, and then the bottle starts drinking out of him. The person starts taking the drugs, and then the drugs start taking the person. And that's what happened to me. And Johnny goes on to describe how his drug addiction took over his whole life. It destroyed his marriage, it destroyed his health, it destroyed his career nearly. Um, he nearly died several times, either due to an overdose or because he drove while he was on drugs. And he's really open in the book about how he knows he caused so much hurt to other people as well as himself. And in October 1967, he decided he had enough. He felt he'd waste his life. He drifted so far away from God that there was no hope. And he decided to go to Nickajack Cave, and as he put it, let God take me from this earth and put me wherever he puts people like me. So he crawled deep into this cave system, and he laid down in the darkness, hoping he would die. But he didn't die. And instead, he started to feel all right for the first time in a very long time. And his mind started to focus on God. And he felt like God put a feeling in his heart that his destiny was not his own, that he was God's, that he belonged to God. And he suddenly got this urge to move, even though he didn't really know which way he needed to go, but he did, he started to move, and miraculously he managed to crawl his way back out of the cave complex and out into the light. And he was met by his, his mother, who had come to find him after she got a sense that he was in trouble and needed help. And as they drove away from the cave, Johnny told his mother he was ready to commit himself to God and to get off drugs. And he did. And it clearly wasn't easy, but he did. But what I think so helpful about Johnny's story is his honesty, because he doesn't end his story there at that moment, coming out of the cave. He admits that his liberation from drug addiction wasn't permanent. He said it's actually something he's had to battle with for his whole life. He's been in rehab a number of times, and his family have had to repeatedly confront him with the reality of who he is and how his behavior has impacted them, to tell him that he needs to turn around again, redirecting him away from death and towards life. There's real honesty and humility to how Johnny writes about his addiction and his recognition he needs God's help every single day to stay sober. I think potentially there's a danger you can read a passage like the one we've looked at today and think it says, people become Christians, their sinful self dies with Christ, they become saints, they never sin again. And yet, we know that's not true. <laughs> we know it's so much messier than that. And Paul isn't saying that because he says, put to death. That phrase is present continuous sense of needing to do this on and on and on. We've got to keep doing this over and over again every day, every day taking that choice, what are we going to put on? I recently read a quote um, on the Lectio 365 app, um, which is um, something I use to help me read the Bible. I find it really helpful. And uh, this, this quote just has stayed with me over the last few weeks. Um, so it's from a book called uh, Three Mile an Hour God. Let me make one observation. God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It's the speed we walk, and therefore, 
It's the speed the love of God walks. Sometimes transformation is instant and dramatic, but quite often the transformation of our hearts will take time. So we need to be honest with ourselves that we're actually probably a lot more like Johnny Cash than we might like to think, that we need to keep close to Jesus, we need to spend time with him, we need to go on asking him to fill us with his spirit. We can't rely on time we spent with him last month or the experiences we had when we first became Christians. We have to go on every day being filled with the spirit, go on putting to death those things that would seek to steal our hearts away from Jesus, those things that whisper to us, look here, come here, this will feel good, this is the way to be happy, this is the way to be secure, this is what life's really all about. But equally, if you're someone who is feeling shame, knowing that maybe you've done something or said something that you shouldn't have done, or maybe there's something that you knew you should have done and failed to do it. No, there is always a way back to God. Jesus' arms are open wide. His love, as we've said again this morning, is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Remember that story of the prodigal son and the father who stood watching the horizon every day, hoping his son would come home. Again and again, God the Father says, come home. Trust that Jesus' death covers all your sin. Yes, even that one. There is nothing that can put a barrier between you and God if you turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. So we need to actively put on what will allow us to live in step with Jesus and in community with each other, which means we also need to be able to forgive each other. That doesn't mean we allow ourselves to be abused or taken advantage of, but that we're bringing everything to God and giving it to him. And above all, this passage says, we need to ask God to clothe us with his love. Because it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to live together in community, to love each other. We need God to clothe us with his love, enabling us to live together and to be a light to the world around us. So we're going to come to a close in a second, and I'm going to invite Faith and the band to come back up. And I just want us to just to focus our minds and our hearts back on Jesus, which is what this passage encourages us to do. And just open yourself to say, what do you want to say to me, Jesus? It might be that you're wearing a behavior or a pattern of thought that you know just doesn't suit you as one of his followers. And you might need to come before him and ask for forgiveness, ask for his help to change, knowing that This is not the end, but the start of that process of transformation. Or maybe you really want to be clothed with some of those new clothes that Paul talks about in this passage. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Or maybe there's someone who's hurt you, and you're really finding it hard to forgive. Bring that to God too, knowing that that it doesn't mean that what happened was right, but the forgiveness will set your own heart free. So we're just going to spend yeah, some time now in, in prayer and worship. If anyone feels like God's leading them to share something, come up and talk to, to Ellie and share it. But I'll just pray as we finish. Yeah, Father, thank you so much for your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Thank you that you love us just as we are, but you love us too much to leave us just as we are. Pray that you would 
Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. Point us to what you want us to be aware of. Meet with us now, we pray. Amen.